one of the um, very important aspects of the stories about the Buddha um, is that he was human. And so it, it's um, not that he wasn't considered a god or a child of a god, um, that he was born human and became awake as a human. It's a very important aspect of the story. And before he was the Buddha, when he was the Buddha to be a young man uh, married with a child, um, he had a father that was a king and, um, of course, wanted his son to inherit (laughs) the family um, institution. Uh, But there was a prophecy that uh, his son would become a great spiritual teacher. So his father uh, tried to protect him from seeing anything, uh, anything with suffering. So his father would <laughs> cleanse the palace and around the palace. Um, but not only that, he, had, he built three palaces for his son for the different weather so that even the weather was pleasant, somewhat pleasant. Um, and he would cleanse the area of anyone um, sick, uh, dying, diseased, or dead. Um, and so at a certain point, you know, there's this description of this spiritual urgency. You know, this is the Buddha to be, right? But he was trying to lull his son into a certain kind of sleep. And... Uh, there was this urgency to what he didn't even know, but he would he talked to his chariot driver secretly, and got him to take him out. And on the way out, it said he went out four times, and each time it took a, a celestial being, like a guardian angel or a deva, to um, appear. The first one was somebody sick. And it, it, you can imagine at that age <laughs> to like finally see somebody sick um, that it just shook him to the core. And he asked the driver, you know, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to everyone I know? And, and the driver said, yes. And he got so shaken, he asked to be come, ba- come back to the palace. And it happened these three times. It was first somebody sick, someone um, diseased, dying, someone dead. And each time it was this huge, huge impact. They're called the four heavenly messengers because they woke him up. Like, this is going to happen to me. This is going to happen to everyone. And the fourth, the fourth um, being that the uh, deva conjured up was a renunciate, a monk. And the, the translation is quite beautiful in this particular story. It said that he saw this monk that was more peaceful than peace itself. And I, I love that description because it's just like, it's just when we talk about how if somebody's walking with apamada, 
carefully and you go you're near them you it's catchy it's like it's infectious right this this peacefulness is so powerful for us it's so tangible and that's what did it the final heavenly messenger it's just like it 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 opened up it he connected with this uh, search in himself for freedom this urgency uh, and he left started searching when the Buddha was old um, and he had his um, illnesses he would ask his attendant Ananda to um, chant the seven factors of enlightenment to him the seven factors of awakening because they're considered so healing and reassuring um, deeply peaceful reassuring so I, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of them because Jesse and I have uh, been talking about them all along um, but again I want to present uh, how they're often presented which is um, the five hindrances the sleepiness restlessness aversion attachment doubt are the, the like the forces in the mind that the seven factors are battling. They're, they're often presented as a battle, these seven factors of light, meaning um, this, the mindfulness is the first one of these seven factors. And the mindfulness is considered so important. It's um, hopefully, if you know um, anything about cloth or weaving, that the the warp of the loom is are the long threads, and they make it possible to actually weave. So, like if somebody's sitting at a loom, the the when you're weaving, you're weaving off of these long threads, and the the weft is just the weaving. So the other six are considered the weft. That's how important the mindfulness is considered. And the, so, therefore, if you think of a, of a warp of a loom, you can see that as the weaving is being made, that this weaving of awakening, that the mindfulnesses are those are always there. It's like they're cons- it's considered so fundamental and so important that it's, it's there with each of the other factors. So the next three are considered energizing. So investigation, courageous energy, and um, joyful interest are considered energizing. And then the calm, concentration, equanimity, the last, those last three are considered tranquilizing. So when all seven are in balance, it's considered a complete moment of awakening, a complete moment <coughs> of peace. And um, so so sometimes we'll feel like we're battling these forces of the hindrances, um, but it's there, the, when these seven factors are in play or somewhat are in play, um, you'll feel like the battle is over. So there's no more battle. <laughs> And you'll feel that. There'll be times when the the practice will feel, for example, effortless. And that that you'll feel like um, 
that description of the nun uh, last night at the end of Jesse's talk where she's um, imperturbable. There's just nothing that it can appear that will um, shatter shatter you. It's like you're that. You see so clearly, and you're so peaceful. Uh, so um, it's very important again with this this thread of the talk that the the Buddha was a human being, and that when he was sick, he wanted to hear someone chant these. it would be so healing. And also it said that the devas love to come around when they're being talked about because they they make you so happy <laughs> to hear about them. When we... Um, when we encourage you to explore sixth sense door moment to moment awareness, this um, it's said that the attention of a fully enlightened being, uh, every moment that something appears, that life appears at the sixth sense doors, there's peace. So there's peace with every. There's a sound, right? There's a, we're we're encouraging you to explore that pure exploration to let go of the anchor and just be, drop into life non conceptually and go with that flow. It said that a fully awake being, that that flow happens and there's no aversion and attachment. There's no fighting. Again, because one is, one is understanding or seeing the, what's happening that clearly. So there's no more war. Each moment is acceptable as it is. It doesn't mean that it's, that makes it pleasant or always okay, right? It's like, it's more just that it, there's no resistance. One understands that that's how things are. So a lot of our practice is facing what, bringing the attention over and over to what is happening, not what we want to get. And, and it's over and over. It's just like that willingness to face. Oh, what am I? What is the expectation? What is the ambition? Where is the striving? Of course, those are happening. And it's just that willingness to see it and to know that when we're believing the expectation, it kills connection. And I use it very... uh, I'm not exaggerating. When we believe expectation, ambition, striving, it's killing the connection in that moment. And it's not just when you're on the pillow or walking. It's with a friend. It's when you're talking with somebody. Anytime you're wanting to get somebody something from somebody, you're not you're not connected. You're no longer a friend. So same again we talk about this relationship that we have with ourselves or others or any being. It's it's that sense that, you know, we <laughs> we want something else to be happening than what's happening uh, and it, it's uh, that that again the, 
the equanimity is just like, oh yeah, but you know, actually what is happening is the truth. So some of that, um, I used to say that wisdom is the gradual lowering of expectation. Um, that um, when you start facing that process over and over of what is happening versus what we're wanting to get or get rid of, that um, we do sometimes have to look at the disappointment of what we were wanting, right? And again, this this includes all our relationships. You know, it's like, what were we wanting? What rather than what is, right? Or um, the impatience. I used to focus so much on thinking I should be patient, and I was missing the, you know, the hidden object was this huge thing called impatience. I, you know, I was like. I remember the moment when it's just like, duh, you know, it's like, wow, you know, just completely wanting more patience and mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, I just didn't get born with much, you know, just like I'd go into that whole <laughs> thing, I'm like, I really didn't get that one this lifetime, and I think, wow, I could actually focus, be mindful of impatience, what, you know, what's happening, what I was wanting versus what was happening. And sometimes, you know, when you when you see that, see something like that profound, how predominant something is, and that you've been missing it, it's it's it can be funny, you know. It's just like, (laughs) (laughs) and I think often I remember, you know, my first few years of practice, there was so much sleepiness. I crown myself the queen of sloth and torpor. <laughs> and nobody's ever gotten the crown, by the way. I've never seen anything quite like it. And I, I you know, there's always this one point where I say, what am I going to do with all this sleepiness? And then there's finally, like, maybe try being mindful of it. It's just unbelievable. And then, you know, once that kind of cleared enough, it was like aversion. Just unbelievable amount of aversion. And, you know, it's like, it was, it's always that same thing, you know. How am I going to get rid of this? You know, like, what do I do with all this? Like, just that constant not accepting it and then trying to like oh it's always that oh maybe I could try being mindful of it it's like I call it mindfulness as a last resort (laughs) 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 this is what we do this is what we do (laughs) and that's peace the un it's without conditions, unconditional acceptance. That's when the battle's over, when when you go, Well maybe I could try being mindful of this. That's like that shifting to peace. When my um dad uh we didn't know he was gonna die, but he fell and um Finally, I got him into uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston, uh, and he was there for two months. 
uh, before he died. He didn't get to go home. Um, and there was a certain point where they brought the hospice in and they asked all of my family to come. And it's probably the one time my family had a shining <laughs> a shining time together like it was incredible because you know it's a it's a crew of like there's fundamentalist Christians Baptists unaffiliated people <laughs> who are you know are the kind of the most snotty about everything you know like they're not affiliated and they're never going to be affiliated etc you know just like this bunch of atheist agnostics it's a real um, mix and then there's this hidden Buddhist, you know, over there, you know, in the circle. But, you know, they know I'm Buddhist. And um, so they kind of went around to everybody. It was quite, they were really good. This one guy was really good. Very quiet, very quiet man, uh, doctor man. And uh, they got to my older sister, and she just started crying and sobbing. And she was like, I don't understand why... My dad had to suffer so much because he had, he really, it's that, it's the thing we're the most afraid of. He had, he was in so much pain, physical pain, so much of it for so long. She just cried. And um, this incredible person, this hospice doctor, very quietly, you could hardly hear him, he just said three words. He got born. Mm. And I can't tell you, my family, they just got knocked to the depths of understanding. Like it was like, it was so true. It was so true that you couldn't deny it. You couldn't go into any kind of denial. It was so beautiful, so simple, so true. Um, and it just made everybody very peaceful. And we made a good decision together about how he would end his, you know, end the life. And it was so, um, later on as I was walking out, he came up to me and he was a, he was a Buddhist, a hidden Buddhist, you know. <laughs> and I, I was just like, oh, thank you so much, you know. It, but it was so, so humble, so simple. But that three words could turn my family around like that. It, it was extraordinary. And, and this is that power of that that's unconditional acceptance, right? It wasn't like, oh, you could have looked at my dad's life and, he, and said, well, he did this. <laughs> he did this. <laughs> right? Like, you know, maybe that's why he suffered so much, right? But it's like that's, you can, the Buddha said not to try to um, fathom karma in that way, that it's unfathomable. And he did some really good things and some really, really rough things, you know? And it's like, but that to keep it that simple, he got born. Very, very important again for all of us that it is that simple. So sometimes the sweet sequence of the factors of awakening are, are really helpful to see that there is a, a, a rationale 
to the sequence, but other times I think it's helpful to let that go. So again, here's that that paradox of um, explanation. Uh, that that's also important because I've seen people come to a retreat. I had a person come to a retreat in Burma, and all she had was calm. And at some point, she got bored. And I knew that, like the last retreat she did, it was very turbulent. And she, you know, she comes in two weeks, and she's like, "It's calm. It's so, you know, it's like it's so boring." <laughs> like, do you remember your last retreat? You know, it's like that perspective. But it's it's just that's what was developing. Just, just calm. Just that factor, you know. And sometimes we can be so again impatient. I had a person at one of my first three month retreats. I taught that he was restless for three months, but like relentlessly, <coughs> relentlessly restless. It you know sometimes people's karma is extreme. And it, I, I mean, it was it was just so hard to help him get through it. But I have so much faith in the process. It's not hard on that level. But it was like, it, you know, I'd say, you know, this is <laughs> like extreme. And then a couple of years later, he came to a retreat, and it didn't come up at all. So we, you know, when when Jesse said, you know, it's so easy for us to try to kind of judge where we are, but we can't. So the, the mindfulness, like I said, we've talked about it a lot, this um, soft readiness or intention to understand rather than to judge, the, the raindrop, all these aspects of, of mindfulness, um, they, they really help us to simply remember to get here. Remember to be here. Recollect the attention. Gather the inten- attention. Um, to trust that that is huge. That every time you remember to come back to be here, that plants another moment to be here. And the more you remember to be here, the more you're going to remember to be here. The less you remember to be here, the less you remember to be here. And so this is not something that you do the retreat, you put the certificate on the wall and say, I did it. It is not like that. You can do this with everything else, but not this. This is, if you don't do this all next year, you're going to lose it. It's just, that's how it is. And, you know, it's again, I always try to put a disclaimer on it. It's like, I didn't make that up. It's just, it's just how it is. <laughs> and you see, you see for yourself, you know, check it out. When you go through periods where you don't remember to be here, you'll be down for the count at some point, And it's then it'll be like, oh, maybe I should try sitting, <laughs> right? It's like, whoa, like maybe I, and then, you know, you come in for a retreat, you get the battery charged. <sighs> You know, by this point, you come in the hall, Jesse and I come in the hall, it's really quiet. You look at people outside walking, and it's like, really, people are remembering to be here more. It's it's palpable. It's wonderful. So 
so that those next three factors of energizing, um, and, and this is the important part of energizing, tranquilizing, is to get to know what type you are and what you're good at. And again, in this practice, you play to your strength. So if you're the calm, concentration, more of the tranquil side of this, it's often hard to remember to investigate. If you, if you, if investigation, courage, um, joyful interest is more your type, it's going to be hard to remember calm, concentration, equanimity. You see, it's like it's it's just starting to understand what you're um, you more inclined toward. I'm a super investigative type, and so there are times where I'll be like, oh. Calm, right? Like, oh yeah, that would be that would be helpful. Equanimity, <laughs> right? You know, it's like yeah, you could pull that hat out and see what happens because you know the, the other part is more accessible for me. But you see, the people that are very calm, you know, they kind of need a little firecracker sometimes, you know, to kind of remind them to investigate. And so we have done so much in, on investigation. It's that uh, remembering that you can check to see if the attention can be non-conceptual. You check to see if you can drop the visual image, for example, or that you can drop the idea of what you think fear is. It's all, it's such a, I love it because it's all humility. It's a hundred percent humility. It's that willingness to to know that actually this next moment is new. And so this practice is not just about concentration. It's not just about um, uh, getting still. It's also about exploration and pure exploration with pure motivation. So the investigation requires that willingness not to know what something is over and over again, not to know, not to know, not to know, or it will be dead. It really will be a memory. It won't be alive. And so this practice is is about connecting with what is alive not dead. So we're using words to help us um, connect the attention with what is wordless. So say, for example, with using hearing or thinking or these words like stepping, they're only words to help us um, connect the attention with what is emerging always wordlessly. Virya is the Pali word for energy, and the first time I heard Sayadaw Upandita, uh, a teacher I spent many years with, he right away called it courageous energy, and it was so helpful. 
You know, and he explained this sequence so carefully. It was just that sense of the mindfulness, the investig you know, you're remembering to be here. The investigation is helping you um, get closer and connect with what is true versus what you're uh, remembering, uh, memory. And then the, the, the energy is the courage it takes to do it. The car- it's the courage it takes to face the unknown again and again and again. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful. It's all the courage. And as Jesse was saying last night, if you don't have the courage, it's okay. You go back to the anchor and you rest the attention until you have the courage. And that's, to me, that's the whole practice. You rest, you have courage. You rest, you have courage to explore. And then, of course, it's said that if you have this courage, <laughs> and of course, Upandita had a very uh, warrior-like way of teaching. Um, he would say the courage is you; it helps you come face to face with what's happening. You know, it's like it's like I I combat, <laughs> not really, but that's what it would feel like sometimes when he'd say it. It was like he was trying to rouse that energy in people to have the courage to be with what's there, the truth. And the joyful interest is that um, it's when you've overcome being caught in the object. So you've overcome the pleasure-pain syndrome. You're no longer just interested in what you want to have happening or what you don't want. It's like you've broken that chain and it's so beautiful this is when that chain breaks that that chain to experience breaks right there and the reason it's joyful is because you're interested in how life is not how you want it to be the so that the translation is is tricky the 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 pt is the word for this pt it's translated as rapture but that in our language that tends to mean pleasant, but PT will can be very unpleasant. It's it's this. I, lo- I the translation I love of it is the um, the deep delight in the truth. This deep delight in the truth, and then of course we know that if we don't balance um, delight with calm, concentration, equanimity, it can get over and exuberant. You know, it's like if you're sitting there and you're trying to, you know, talk to somebody about the practice and you're trying to, you're going to go home and you're really going to, like, really convince them to come to a retreat, you're getting into over-exuberance, right? You know, you're like, you know, and you might sit there for half an hour figuring out how to talk to them about it and then, like, three hours later, you're, you're in a... Yeah. Just a bummer place, and you know, like you're like taking it all back. You're glad you you didn't have the conversation because you're no longer in that place. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. We're so fickle. So the the over exuberance, that sense of like kind of going off on like a rocket. Ooh, I know it so well. It gets you know. It's like that's where you kind of remember. You know, the image of the Buddha's face 
you know, he's not going off like a rocket, right? It's, <laughs> you just check it out if you're the type that kind of gets really excited. It's like, it's not like that. But there's a smile. But it's very serene. There's a serenity that's, like you can tell the, that all that energizing energy is balanced with the calm, the concentration. And there'll be times when you feel that joyful interest and you'll feel pulled pulled even deeper into a quiet place. So you're not trying to... What I see that's very difficult with that joyful energy is that um, the joyful interest is you're not wanting to crush it. You're not trying to get rid of it. You don't want to be afraid of getting attached to it. This place is critical in practice because we're just afraid of that energy as we are as the sleepiness. It's like, and this energy, joyful interest, it'll feel like the the air filling a balloon. And this gives us even more of a chance to go into unknown territory. It's like this, this the, another way to describe the energy in, on a meditation retreat is you're actually conserving energy. That's why we're not talking. That's why we're not going out to uh, the grocery store. That's why we're not cooking. It's like the whole retreat is designed toward conservation of energy. And now it's very popular to talk about sustainable energy, right, and conservation of energy. But when we're faced with a retreat where you actually can learn what that might mean, Mm -hmm. we don't always like it. So the reason we don't like it is because you have enough energy to leave all our familiar, known experiences. So pure exploration is really exploring it's adventuresome it can feel risky uh, to um, have anxiety be your your uh, karmic knot and to be willing to drop drop your awareness into it to really drop into it and and explore what the anxiety feels like without any past ideas about it So that we, if, if you feel the energy coming and you feel a little uncomfortable, that's good. And it's learning how, it's not like you try to, you don't have to put a pin in the balloon and let it out, but that's often what we do. If you find yourself kind of thinking and thinking about something you'd like to do, then you're, you're letting the air out of the balloon. You're getting back into like your identity and what you like to do, and and it's very there's energy, so it's creative. So it's not like creative energy is wrong or bad, but on a retreat, you're trying to learn to not write the book, right? <laughs> or not plan the vacation, or you know what? Not you know you'll you'll see like just check. It's like if you've gone half an hour into writing a book, you're you're caught, right? You've gone over. You're, you've let a lot of energy out of the blue. And th- th- don't worry, you, you have to go out of, you have to do this to learn how to do it. You do that, you could do, we do that many times before we get, oh, I'm letting the air out of the blood. I don't have to do this. So you learn how to drop into the energy itself 
and to go, you drop in deeper with it rather than kind of get excited with the creative energy and use it up. And then there's um, the calm, the concentration, which again we've talked about a lot on the Vitaka Vichara and the um, the equanimity will feel like a big shift when that when that appears. we really are genuinely not resisting what's happening. In fact, when equanimity appears, there's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. So, so I, we've talked about it before, but literally, when the fear comes up, I'm exaggerating it, and it's an exaggeration, but it's literally, oh, it's totally fine you really do get that it's like being with the sound of a bird. It's really like being with a physical sensation. Fear. It's not like you talk yourself into it or pretend. It's, it, equanimity means you're genuinely accepting that it's there or the sleepiness or anything. It's like or the, anything is, is fine. And that's why um, you can really explore there. And of course, you can see how the joyful interest, that delight in the truth, brings us to the equanimity, and that's what the, that's the sequence I'm describing. And it's never that clear usually. That sequence is. Please don't think that it's that clear. It could happen in two two or three seconds. That sequence, and almost it will happen so fast you might not even see it. Or it can happen very slowly over years. It'll, you know, it'll it'll feel like it's just something's kind of coming into the fore, and then the others are more um, distant. One of the results at times with I think when these when these factors become clearer or even one or two are, are more in the four, there's often this overwhelming generosity of heart towards other beings, you know, and ourselves. It's like we just we just get that sense of like um, forgiveness because we can forgive ourselves. We understand that without these factors, um, we're fighting. And with these factors, we're peaceful. And we want peace so much, but we want the peace um, without, without the work, without doing the practice. It, it's, uh, it doesn't happen that way. But I think that there's that there's that aspect of this that we when we taste that even a little bit the contentment that that peace that that compassion and understanding for all of us it's so beautiful it's worth all the the struggle of of the work of it 
you know, sometimes I really think it's important to, to just know at times the incredible noise that's in our head. You know, if you just if you just took like what's happening inside your head and you just if we were playing everybody's in this room on a loudspeaker, you couldn't you wouldn't be able to stand it. It would be so painful. You look around the room. It's just like if you played everybody's mind on a loudspeaker, or even one of ours, if anybody was willing to volunteer to have their mind broadcast, nobody would do it. Even if you paid them a million dollars, they wouldn't do it. It would be humiliating. It would be. You couldn't bear it. Even five minutes of it, you couldn't stand the person next to you knowing that you, you were thinking that, right? It's like, it's that, it's that intense, you know? And that is very important because we, it's, again, that humility to know that that's how much we can't control it. So, of course, the more you practice, you have more, you have more compassion for all of us. To be again, he got born. My dad got born. You got born. We got born. This is the predicament. This is from Srinasargadatta Maharaj. The question to him is really a comment. It's uh, the comment to him is pain is not acceptable, and he answered, "Why not?" Which is a great answer, <laughs> but it does go on. Pain is not acceptable, and he says, "Why not?" <clears throat> Did you ever try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. And, and this is essential to understand. It's so amoral. It's just the fact of it, the fact of it again, that the, if the acceptance of pain brings us much deeper than the acceptance of pleasure does. It's so powerful. Again, it's so compassionate. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. It's the ending of the pattern. In terms of this shifting from the joyful interest to calm, you know, I'm becoming more interested in, in trying to describe that for people. And um, in the ancient texts, they say that the body, it's the body of one whose mind is joyful, becomes tranquil. Becomes tranquil. So this is very, very profound. It's like when joyful interest appears, 
and you're interested in pain or pleasure or neutral, you're interested in life itself. Isn't it interesting that it says the body becomes tranquil? And if, if you know, the Buddha called joy the gateway to enlightenment. And, you know, so this is a, these are very critical teachings. It's like joy is the gateway to enlightenment, and yet when it happens, we tend to get so afraid of it or, you know, go off like a rocket with it. You know, it's like, it's like learning how to uh, make this bridge from this joyful interest to the equanimity. It's fascinating. And it's like it, when that joyful interest happens, you can, you'll feel that whole sense of, of that relaxation. And we relax because we're no longer, we're on that journey where we're no longer resisting the pain. That's why it gets tranquil. The whole, all of us gets tranquil because of it. And we're able to really explore. The body of one whose mind is joyful becomes tranquil. One whose body is tranquil experiences happiness. And then with with the mind as happy, content, and calm... It's ready for insight and wisdom. So that, that's the context in this context. That the, then we're ready for the insight and wisdom because um, we're actually interested. Again, it's genuine. Not, we're not, we can't fake it. The beauty of this practice is that it's foolproof. <laughs> you can't fake it. <laughs> if you love... Purity, if you love the truth, then it's wonderful. It's no fun to really be trying to fool yourself all the time and others. Some years ago, I had a student that um, had Lou Gehrig's disease, and um, she was really afraid, again, of the pain in in the future. So um, we worked on one very simple practice, which was she would just, this is the investigation, am I okay right now? And it's so powerful, I'm sort of answering your question, um, that uh, the fear of pain, even when the pain isn't even happening, right, is so powerful. And we could spend our whole life, right, being afraid of something that's not happening. And so that practice where she would ask herself, am I okay right now, became so deep. It's like she rarely wasn't okay. Even at the end, like she died very beautifully and peacefully, and it was hard. But it was mostly, am I okay right now? Yeah. Actually, I am. Very important uh, and powerful. And I um, was so happy about this. And then one time I was um, on a plane, I think from Vancouver to Chicago to um, Hartford, Connecticut, and I, I 
was really tired from teaching in British Columbia, and I got I was getting on like the plane, and I knew what seat I had, and I'm getting on, and um, this priest comes up to me, and he said, "Could you sit in my seat?" I'm like, no, you know why? You know, he said, "I just can't deal with this guy. Like, I can't do it." He's like, "I just, I can't do it." <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh boy, he can't do it. <laughs> I, I, like, I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm tired too. <laughs> He's like, he begged me, I beg you, please don't, don't make me do it. I can't do it. And I said, okay, you know. And all through the flight, I kept looking back at him, like, you know, this is a good one. Thanks very much, you know. And so. This guy was so bonkers terrified of flying. It was, it was, <laughs> oh my God, it was like an impossible situation. And so, it was so amazing, like, he, and he's, so I, I get on, and you know, it's like, and he's reading the emergency, you know, uh, instructions <laughs> over and over and over. And then he's like bonkers, and I said, well, you know, you could try, like, not reading that. <laughs> that, that might be your first <laughs> he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's, and I took it, I'm like, let's put that away. <laughs> deal, deal, you know, and, it's like, and so we're going along, and I finally try the Lou Gehrig's disease teaching, right? Like, it's a, it works, it's a clincher, it's always going to work, it fails safe, foolproof, and, you know, it's like, so we're doing it. We're practicing it. We're on the flight. He's like crazy, bonkers. Nobody can, you know, and I'm looking back at the priest like, <laughs> I might call you back, you know. And so, um, are you okay right now? And he's like, no. <laughs> I wanted to go at work. <laughs> Stop it! The answer is yes. It was so frustrating. I can't even tell you. You know, it's like I'm really tired, and he's like grabbing onto me, and oh man! And so it's like, so I'm asking. Then I start asking questions about his life, and blah blah blah. And I find, ah, I finally thought, oh yeah, okay. So let's go into the future. And I said, "What? What? Who's going to meet you at baggage claim?" And he said, "Oh, my wife and daughter." And I said, "Okay, for the rest of the flight, we are going to imagine you getting off the plane with me, of course, holding your hand. <laughs> We're going to go to baggage, and you're going to look in their eyes. And what is that going to feel like?" He was okay. It was amazing. Like, it's like, but he had to do it constantly. It's like the whole rest of the plane ride. It was like, we're at baggage, we're looking in their eyes, and you're okay. And you see, that's the anchor, right? The meta anchor. And this is why we teach all these different tools. Because it's like, for him, <laughs> the pasta practice was just not going to make it. We weren't going to, I wasn't going to make it. You know, it's like, you know, but it was very powerful because I didn't call it a meta anchor, of course. But it's like, we just repeated that moment where he could look in their eyes. And that there was really moving. And so I think what I'm really encouraging is that we'll think, well, 
if this happens, then I always do this with it, and then that's going to be okay, right? But actually, sometimes when this happens, this doesn't help. (laughs) And actually, we need to be creative and have something else that we try, or something else that we try. I can try about 3,000 things at this point. You know, it's like, that's why I say, even with an anchor, plan A, plan B, plan C. You know, and then if that's not working, maybe focusing on appreciative joy, right, rather than metta. You, the more you learn, and it's not like you're doing it like you're not training and you're not learning something fully, but over time, as you learn these things, you can help other people as well as yourself with whatever's happening. Because the story will always bring you to the universal. The story, meaning whatever thoughts are going through your head, and if they're repeating, or if somebody else's thought patterns are repeating, there's something universal there, like loneliness, or, or you know, or enthusiasm, or it's like the, this ability to be able to go, oh, it's just rage. I was hoping rage would come up today because I don't know how to work with it yet. And I need to get a relationship with it. I mean it. What if somebody else walked in here and they were enraged? I wouldn't be afraid, but I would be careful. (laughs) Because I know rage is a big fire. It's just a big fire. Yeah, so it's like, you know, this this whole um, practice is one of seeing as clearly as we can what what is happening, not what we want to be happening. It's like I wanted that man to just say, yeah, <laughs> it's okay right now, right? But that's not what was happening. So what is peace there? Do I spend the rest of the plane ride fighting his panic, or do I find another way to connect with it? That so that the the expectation that one way is going to work kills connection. The freedom to explore and find a way to the connection—that's what this practice is all about. When you walk and sit, and it's like you're sitting. If there's if there's a trigger or resistance, it's like you don't batter. The resistance, right? We've been saying it over and over again. You make space for it. You allow it out of kindness. And then your system's safe. And eventually you find a way to connect with it, whatever is there, whatever there's resistance to. There's always another chance. If you're not perfectly able to be with anger, and you have to move away from it. I guarantee that there'll be another chance someday. <laughs> it's not our biggest worry. So one that is more peaceful than peace itself. Very inspiring.
I want to just end with a story, a very short story about one of the feral cats that um, came by when she was three months old and starving. And um, I think she's been around for six and a half years now. Um, And she's feral. So the short part of the story could be longer, but um, I was in a very busy part of my life at that point at home. And um, somehow she got in the garage and I didn't know it. And so I had shut the garage door. But this had never happened. It was kind of... um, Apparently, it became a new place for her to feel, you know, like enjoy. But I, this was a new pattern of hers, and I didn't know it. So I didn't know for 48 hours. But she's feral. Like, it's hard to even put into words how utterly horrible and terrifying this must have been for her. And um, so oh, I opened the door, and I was like, oh, my God. And she just, like, she zipped out of there so fast. It was like... I'm sorry. <laughs> so fast. But then halfway down the driveway, she stopped. And uh, it was like she had just jammed on the brake. And um, you know the Sphinx in Egypt? You know that? that you know, she was just like, it was like, <laughs> and uh, it was sunset. And uh, 48 hours. And... Uh, she just looked up. And I tried a couple times to approach her, and she had no interest in an apology. You know, she just she just really wanted me not to be around. <laughs> and so I respected that. I kept, you know, checking, and um, I kept setting the alarm every couple hours to check. And she never moved, and she just looked up at the sky all night and you think it's like she never lives with a roof right she never and she ne- the, the way that she um, felt comfort was to look at the sky all night and um, after that I looked up that um, humans can see up to 40,000 stars but cats can see up to 80,000 80,000 and owls can see a million and I was just, I just, I shared this because it was so moving, like how she oriented herself and how she anchored and how she stayed centered and she knew what she needed. Um, and then she was fine. And it's something to really learn. You know, it's we can learn from so many things, but I learn so much from that because I feel like I don't look up at the sky enough. You know, we're so used to our our roofs, but it's like that um, how much we're missing. So let's sit for a minute.
may be happy and peaceful of heart. It's time for walking and then the metta choir Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.